Lowell, can you present your case? This is a 37-year-old white female who is an intensive care unit nurse who I saw last year with a new onset of breast cancer. She had noticed a mass in her breast in about January of 2006. She was pregnant at that time and had three prior children and ignored it for a month or two and then did get it biopsied. She underwent a termination of pregnancy at about that time before she came to see me. She was sent to see me by the surgeon right after the biopsy, and she had a between four and five centimeter palpable mass in the breast. I could not feel anything in the axilla. Her biopsy had shown a tumor, which was a high-grade infiltrating ductal carcinoma. It was strongly ER positive, about 95%, PR negative, grade three histologic, and about a 35% on KI-67. And on HER2 via FISH, it was 9.7 times amplified. Her staging with CAT scans for distant disease was negative. When was this that she was actually diagnosed? I first saw her in April of 2006. Her biopsy was in March, of late March 2006. John, how would you be thinking this through? Obviously, she's a young woman, and you have to consider whether there are genetic associated causes here, and you can look into that, of course, later. You said she terminated her pregnancy, so we're not limited in the chemotherapy options we can use because we're not having to worry about a viable fetus here. Obviously, a devastating time for this woman. Well, in the preoperative setting, neoadjuvant setting now, our standard used to be AC for four cycles, followed by four cycles in our center of docetaxel with Herceptin begun at that point. But again, we have looked at the data that has come out with TCH, and we now have both options available. I'm not saying one is necessarily any better than the other, but again, the cardiotoxicity issue might be less in a woman this young, one way to look at it. However, she's got longer to live, too, so she may have longer to develop problems, you know, 20 and 30 years down the road. So I'd probably have that discussion. I'd be comfortable with any of the standard regimens here, ACTH or TCH, but I would be comfortable with TCH. There is a neoadjuvant trial of TCH running in Canada as we speak, and it's not my trial. All I can tell you is that the author of the trial tells me they're seeing very good results, but I don't have data or details on that as to a PCR rate. Can you talk a little bit about Aman Buzdar's regimen out of MD Anderson and whether you would consider that option? Well... The MD Anderson study is a small randomized phase two, which shows a very high pathologic complete response rate. Basically, he's using an epirubicin-based anthracycline concurrent with the trastuzumab and following that with weekly taxol and trastuzumab. And the trial was shut down early because the IRB felt it was unethical to continue the trial in the presence of such a high PCR rate. But at the end of the day, I think that that's an interesting data point, but Again, given our experience with metastatic doxorubicin or epirubicin plus trastuzumab producing 20% congestive heart failure rate, I'm just not comfortable doing that in a curative intent population because we have alternatives. And I also want to caution you that PCR is all well and good if you achieve it, but there is some evidence from the literature that it isn't translating into the outcomes we want to see. So you've got a regimen that increases PCR, such as the NSABP experience with adding neoadjuvant docetaxel that doubles the PCR rate. Everybody's jumping around doing circles. I would have bet money that overall survival would have been improved, but it wasn't. 
So we also have to take with a word of caution that PCR is a surrogate endpoint to what really matters to our patients, which is relapse-free and overall survival. And so we've got other options, and I wouldn't expose her to the risk of concurrent anthracyclines. Ruth, anything to add in terms of non-protocol therapy and any clinical research efforts in neoadjuvant therapy that you might want to comment on that this type of patient might have been eligible for? There's a lot of different trials out there looking at Herceptin with various chemos and bevacizumab as well. I usually treat these patients with a joint analysis approach. I think there's nothing wrong with AC followed by docetaxel Herceptin as well. I guess we don't know for HER2-positive cancers how important PCR is, but I think even in the B27 study, the subset analysis did show that PCR was a marker of long-term outcome, even though it wasn't overall in the trial, because they did do that analysis. So I think Buster's approach is interesting, but I would agree with John. For a woman this young, I'd be very leery of giving combined anthracyclines and trastuzumab. So I would give her AC followed by either paclitaxel weekly with Herceptin or a docetaxel with Herceptin. There obviously is some interest in a dose-dense regimen with Herceptin. Um, apparently, it's reasonably safe on the heart. I haven't used it because I guess we don't know whether the eight weeks concurrent chemo Herceptin is the same as 12 weeks concurrent Herceptin because we haven't had a similar type of trial on that issue. So that's what I would do with her. Matt, we were talking about the Aphrodite now Alto trial and adjuvant setting, but those same questions seem to be of great interest in the neoadjuvant setting. I think the NSABP is considering or planning a trial where they're going to have, again, Herceptin in one arm, Herceptin plus Lapatinib in this other arm, and Lapatinib alone neoadjuvant look at tumor response, what goes on inside the tissue, of course, plus chemotherapy. What do you think about that strategy and about the neoadjuvant platform in general as a way to move forward? First of all, just to mention another trial, which is the upcoming CalGB trial, which is paclitaxel weekly, and then it's going to be the combination of trastuzumab and lapatinib or lapatinib to get some kind of signal as to whether the combination in particular is better. And I think that, in general, that's a reasonable way to move forward and get rapid answers to encourage us to do large studies with thousands of patients in. So I like the neoadjuvant strategy in terms of a drug development platform. The other thing is building on the success of Z1031, where we have got frozen biopsies and all patients going on to neoadjuvant endocrine therapy patients shipped to St. Louis, and it's all worked out. And I think actually U.S. oncology have started to think about frozen tissue accrual as well. But bottom They've been line doing is, neoadjuvant studies. And yeah, re- and getting shipping fresh material. Right, we finished one. We're working with Buster. Yeah, working on another one. And we have another one that's starting. So I think this idea that we can't get high-quality material for genomic analysis in a cooperative group setting is nonsense. I think we clearly can, and we should pursue that very hard. And in a community setting, because that right. was one of the issues that Frankie Holmes reported at San Antonio is simply that they were able to pull this off. Yeah. I think it was with MD Anderson, is that right? right? It's with their lab. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a very important thing to be doing because as we, what I like to call, write the breast cancer genome atlas, this is the way it's going to be written. We need to have the bits of tissue to run the assay. So the one clinical point I made with this case, it comes up on our tumor board all the time, I personally would do an upfront sentinel node biopsy. She's clinically node negative, but if she's node positive, it might change the radiotherapy planning, not the chemotherapy, but the radiotherapy planning. And regional radiation therapy to the nodes is a fairly big deal, and I want to be sure that the patient is getting it appropriately. She's not a T3 tumor where perhaps that might be considered anyway, so that would be my own practice point. Lowell, can you follow up with what happened? 
she had a very dramatic and rapid shrinkage of the tumor on the TCH. I would say she got four preoperative cycles. It was just about gone after the second that you could feel anything. So I gave her a total of four. At that point, she was still doing well, feeling well, and I felt that she was sort of in optimal condition. So I sent her back to the surgeon. How did she tolerate the TCH? Very well, very well. I mean, she had some growth factors, you know, the usual mild things, but she's a healthy woman. She continued to work as a nurse, at least on a part-time basis, while she was getting treated. So she went to surgery, and she had a modified radical mastectomy. And in the breast, she had about a 0.8 centimeter residual DCIS only. However, what was disturbing was in the axilla, she had four out of 10 axillary lymph nodes positive for metastatic carcinoma. So she did very well with surgery, recovered nicely, came back to the office. So, Ruth, now the consideration of post-op therapy with these positive nodes, what would you be thinking? This is definitely one of the big questions that is out there, is what you do for these patients that have residual disease, particularly when it sounds like she had a good response to the chemotherapy. And I don't think we know the right answer. I think in this woman it would be reasonable to complete the TCH therapy for sure. I would probably do that give her two more cycles and then put her on her septin for a total of a year. That's probably what I would do. But, you know, obviously you have situations when you've given more chemotherapy up front and you're still left with this issue. I believe that IU and UCSF are doing a randomization for these patients between a bevacizumab-based chemotherapy regimen or not in these settings because I think it really is a question we haven't answered very well. But in this patient, I'd probably give her two more cycles of TCH and then hormonal therapy and the transduzumab. Let's find out about John and... Matt, in terms of this patient post-op, what do you think, John? Well, I think there's two trials that tell us something, and that is to be humble. The first trial was a neoadjuvant study where we had patients that received basically CHOP followed by Taxotere as compared to continuing CHOP if patients were responding. So responding patients, everything was good. You continued them on therapy. They still did better if you switched over, which lets us know that If you're responding, we still don't know what we're doing. We have found out that that may not be good enough. You should still switch, in this case, to four cycles of taxotere. People do better. And the other trial that teaches us a little bit of humility is the German cooperative group study where they took TAC and they gave four cycles of TAC. And if people were not responding, they randomized them to completing two cycles of TAC or two cycles of navalbine zolota, supposedly non-cross-resistant chemo, and those were the agents that we had. There was no benefit to switching them to non-cross-resistant chemo. So it just tells us that when you actually do neoadjuvant chemotherapy, we might think we know what we're doing, but response or not, we just have to go with the validated regimens. So in the absence of overt progression within the breast, we don't really have good options when people start progressing. So basically, you give the best you can, you close your eyes, and our decisions aren't really as informed as we think they are. So bottom line is, what would you do post-op? Post-op, I would have, personally, my preference would be give all the chemotherapy, go to surgery, and not stop halfway through because it just confuses the issue and makes everyone get ulcers. But I would continue in this case with another two cycles of TCH and continue on with the Herceptin, and I forgot whether she was hormone receptor positive. She is. She is positive, and then enter into that discussion we had earlier. Real quick for Matt. I guess I've listened to Larry Norton enough to believe in Gompertz and growth kinetics and the importance of getting your chemotherapy on time. So I think it's a bad management style to break for chemo. And there's some hint from NSABP study B27 that breaking for surgery is possibly a bad thing to do. So give it all up front. And then... Despite the fact that she's got positive nodes, she's still going to get maintenance trastuzumab. She's still going to get endocrine therapy. We don't ultimately know what this lady's outcome would be. 
However, I do in general favor the idea of a trial where patients who have significant residual disease despite neoadjuvant therapy could be randomized to something else versus observation. So if she had gotten, John, six cycles of TCH but still had these positive nodes, what would you have done? In our center, we'd also add local regional radiotherapy, post-mastectomy presumably, and hormonal therapy. But we have no trial open for that. We've discussed running one in BCRG, but we had such an argument among the science committee. Half of them were saying, well, these are the chemorefractory patients. There's nothing more you can do. The other were saying, the study we should run is the ones with the pathological complete response. They're the ones that have chemosensitive disease. We should be perhaps looking at more for them. And then it came to blows. There's a bit of bloodshed, but we didn't end up with the trial. <laughs> Why couldn't you randomize to zolodolapatinib versus nothing? I mean, I think that would be a very nice study to run. After all, non-cross-resistant drugs. Zolodolapatinib, interesting. And no more trastuzumab? Well, you know, <laughs> you can't do trial design on a tape, but I think the broad concept is there, and I think working out the detail is what we could all focus on and I'm sure agree upon. So, Lowell, can you follow up? Well, my concern also was that she had four nodes at the time of surgery, but I don't know, you know, as Matt said, we don't have nodes, we don't know what her nodal status was at the time that we first saw her. Maybe she had eight and went down to four, and she had such a dramatic response to the breast. I had a hard time calling her a complete non-responder to this. So I actually decided kind of a version of the Vazdarian concept to give this lady four cycles of FEC. So I stopped the Herceptin. She had four cycles of FEC afterwards. I felt she'd never seen an anthracycline. I was not comfortable with calling this lady a non-salvageable patient. So I wanted to make sure she got some anthracycline. So she got four cycles of FEC without Herceptin, restarted Herceptin, and has been back on Herceptin and Tamoxifen since that time. Did get some radiation to the chest wall and still doing well at this point. So whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I did not have a study for her, and I did not feel comfortable finishing her treatment with no anthracycline exposure since she still had this at surgery. The art of oncology. John? And this is why it's difficult when you actually you are looking halfway through. It makes life difficult. But just wanted to point out that, in fact, for at least the first couple of cycles of chemo, you were actually giving her concurrent Herceptin and anthracycline because the half-life of trastuzumab, once it's fully loaded, you know, is, I understand. is measured in months. So. I was thinking of continuing the Herceptin, actually, since she was 36, but I perhaps to treat myself felt a bit uncomfortable with actually pushing Herceptin and anthracycline at the same time in her. But I agree, it's got a long half-life. You know, if you had sent her to MD Anderson at the beginning, I think they would have given her that regimen. Correct. 